Return to the Word is made possible by faithful supporters like you. Find out more at returntotheword.com. Welcome to another edition of Return to the Word Radio with Bible teacher Mark Fontecchio. Advancing the message of God's amazing grace through the teaching of God's Word. And now with today's message, here is our teacher. As we look to Acts chapter 13, I am reminded of a snapshot from history from the year 1982. Now, despite being underneath communist control, Billy Graham had actually received permission to speak in Czechoslovakia. It was actually televised back then for the world to see. And the announcer explained that they had been forbidden by the authorities to meet in a building. They could not meet in a public arena at all, and absolutely no advertising of this event would be allowed. They were forced to meet in a forest in the wintertime with several feet of snow on the ground. The camera showed the picture, it showed the scene, and at first no one could be seen at all. It was just, it looked like an empty forest. But then as the camera moved ever so slowly, the trees, they seemed to be moving. People came walking through the snow to this meeting place, through the trees. And then the camera, it focused on a road, a little road that was nearby, and it was actually just littered with people. You started to see the the outline of people coming out to, to hear the Word of God. And before too long, even though it was behind closed door in this communist country, there was people everywhere standing in the snow, ready to receive the Word of God. We come across a picture not unlike this in Acts chapter 13. Find yourself again in the text if you would. Paul and Barnabas had made their way through the mountains, making their way to Antioch in Pisidia, where Paul had told the synagogue, think back a couple of weeks, that the same God that had been working throughout the history of the Hebrew people had fulfilled the promise of the Messiah. Looking first at verses 42 and 43 in our text, where we see a couple of things taking place here. The first reaction of the people of this synagogue to the gospel message, it was pretty good at first. Verse 42, it gives us the image of the service ending. And the translations, they differ a little bit here. But not everyone was equally impressed with the gospel message. Some of the people wanted more. More of this teaching about grace. They wanted Paul to preach the same message the next Sabbath. Notice the wording. The people begged They wanted to hear more about the gospel of Christ, more about the words of life. They were not used to this. They were used to hearing the Old Testament laws of Moses. They were used to hearing the Jewish traditions, all the rules, all the legalism. But they weren't used to hearing the words of God's grace, God's love, God's free offer of redemption in Jesus Christ. So verse 43, it gives us the impression that once Barnabas and Paul had gone outside, once they left the synagogue, then some of the Jews and proselytes followed Paul and Barnabas. These would have been the Gentiles who had fully converted to the Jewish faith. Many of the Jews, they wanted to know more. 
The proselytes wanted to know more. So far, so good, right? I mean, you would be happy with this. The people followed them, and Paul and Barnabas persuaded them to continue in the grace of God, to keep their minds and hearts receptive to the grace of God. Now hear me on this point. In order to continue in the grace of God, you must first what? Experience the grace of God. Meaning, this implies that some of the people now following them had already placed their faith in Jesus Christ for salvation. And they would need encouragement to continue in the grace of God rather than falling back into the legalism and traditions of men. Because the temptation is always what? It's to go back to trying to live by the laws of Moses. That's always the temptation. To fall back into laws. To fall back into legalism. To fall back into works to try to earn favor with God. You see, a messenger of God's grace had shown up in town, and people were starving to hear more. Now try to understand why the people were so excited. Week after week, what did they hear? They were taught the Old Testament scriptures. But you see, there was always a missing piece. That missing piece was Jesus Christ. And Luke tells us the people begged to hear more, more about this, about what Paul had preached to them. Remember the message from the text before this. Paul had told them in verse 17, God is sovereign. God is the one who chose the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. God is just, verse 19. He will not let sin go unpunished. God is patient, verse 18. He put up with the Israelites complaining and grumbling in the wilderness. God leads his people, Paul said. And he said, God protects the people and he guides them. He is the God of salvation. God delivers his people with an uplifted arm. He brought them out of Egypt, verse 17. And then Paul showed up with Barnabas and he told the people that the promises of God, they were fulfilled in the man, in the person, in the Son of God, Jesus. That through Jesus, the Christ, the forgiveness of sins is offered through faith in the substitutionary work of Jesus upon the cross, his death and resurrection. Men are justified. Meaning what? What does that mean? We use that term all the time. They're justified. Well, it means to be declared righteous before a holy and perfect God. Between verse 43 and verse 44, a whole week goes by. And a lot of things can happen in any church or any congregation here in a week's time. In this case, word had gone out. Notice what we read. On the next Sabbath, almost the whole city came together to hear the word of God. Now, not every single person. That's not the idea. Not every single person. But crowds of people came. Crowds of people came out. Most of the people from this city came out to hear the word of God. Oh, I wish I could have been there. I wish we saw this same type of passion today for the gospel of grace. I wish we saw this. Now, this city had about 50,000 people in it. So let's do some math. This would have been a massive crowd if most of the people would have come out. Paul and Barnabas, I want you to think about this. If Paul and Barnabas just decided on their own, hey, we're going to go out and try to reach all the 50,000 people, they could have never done it. They could have never gone out and knocked on 50,000 doors by themselves to get this many people on their own. So where did they all come from? Paul and Barnabas were faithful in preaching 
with the opportunity that they had at the synagogue. But listen, it was the brand new converts from the week before, from the week before that were willing to be used by God to tell others about these two men preaching Christ. And the people came. Oh, they just came and came and came. Brand new Christians. Brand new Christians. Less than a week in their faith, they went out and invited people to hear about the gospel of Jesus Christ. This crowd gathered because they wanted to hear the message of life. They wanted to hear the word of God. Now, I've said many times before that I think there are more people out there today, still to this day, hungry for the word of God than there are preachers who are willing to labor in the word of God and actually stand up and teach the word of God. Here comes the uh, opposition. Anytime you preach God's truth, opposition comes. Here it comes, verse 45. But when the Jews saw the multitudes, they were filled with envy and contradicting and blaspheming. They opposed the things spoken by Paul. Paul and Barnabas had been invited back. That's a good thing. But this was a, a Gentile city. And the Gentiles that feared God, when they heard the message the week before from Paul, they understood that the salvation that was proclaimed in Christ, it would include them. They weren't left on the outside anymore. Word had spread and people were coming. And the Jews, they took a look at all of the Gentiles that were coming out to hear this message of God's grace. And they were just filled with envy. They were jealous. So they did everything that they could to oppose the word that Paul spoke. It didn't matter to them if they had to contradict the truth. It didn't matter to these Jews if it meant rejecting the Messiah, rejecting the gospel of Christ, rejecting their own redemption, or even slandering the name of Christ by trying to proclaim that Jesus is not the Messiah. Now I think it's wrong to translate it here that they were slandering or blaspheming Paul. To reject the gospel is to blaspheme God himself because Jesus is the greatest expression of the glory of God in human history. To reject the gospel, it's not just a choice. To reject the gospel isn't just something you may do. It is actually opposition to God. It is to blasphemy God himself because Jesus, he is God. And if you reject the gospel, you're denying everything that he says about who he is. Aren't you? You absolutely are. And that is blasphemy. Paul warned them back in verse 41, if you remember, about the danger of rejecting the gospel, but they were scoffing at the gospel. Now, it was one thing for Paul and Barnabas to come to the synagogue and proclaim the coming of the Messiah to the Jews. That's one thing. You can get away with that in a synagogue. It was a completely different matter to proclaim that God accepted the Gentiles. You see, it's the same thing that happens today in a lot of ministries. A lot of people in ministry would rather have a crowd follow after them instead of follow Jesus Christ. And these Jews were like a lot of churches today. They were the big fish in the little pond. They considered themselves the experts on everything of the Jewish faith. And they felt threatened. And it made them nothing but jealous. And the Gentiles were quickly following after this message that Paul proclaimed in such large numbers. And they were jealous. Now I want you to notice with me something here. Notice that these Jews, they didn't reject Christ because they had dug into the scriptures and studied it out and came to the conclusion that Christ did not or could not have fulfilled the prophecies. 
It was just simply because they were jealous. And not just a little bit, was it? Notice what the text says. They were filled, meaning they were controlled, they were dominated with jealousy. You know, men like this are never looking out for the best interests of the people. The pride is only looking for a crowd, looking for fame, looking for attention. And I have to think that after the first Sabbath, Paul and Barnabas, they must have been so encouraged. They must have been so encouraged after that first Sabbath. Could have been a powerful witness. Could have been a stronghold. But I think the Jews without faith, they thought about it all week long. They had a full week to think about this. They had arguments ready in hand to contradict the gospel message. Now watch this response from Paul and Barnabas. It's powerful. Notice what they said in verse 46. Then Paul and Barnabas grew bold and said, It was necessary that the word of God should be spoken to you first. But since you reject it and judge yourselves unworthy of everlasting life, behold, we turn to the Gentiles. If you've ever come across on the internet the Darwin Awards, then you know that they recognize the foolish things that people have done. And when I said that, there was a few of you that chuckled, so some of you have. Well, one year, two teenagers in Britain were so into Star Wars. Now, I get their first point here. I think what, I understand the, the desire here. But two teenagers in Britain were so into Star Wars, they wanted to recreate the lightsaber fighting scenes. Now, I get that. That would be cool. But they got a little carried away with it. They took two fluorescent tubes, and they opened them up, and then they poured gas yeah, you can see where this goes wrong. They poured gas down them and started it on, on fire. Well, one of them died, and the other had serious burns. The same year, another man was traveling by train home from work. He fell asleep. He missed his stop, and he wanted to get home. So what did he do? He pried open the doors, and he jumped out not thinking about the fact that he was going over a bridge at 50 miles an hour in this train, and there was a deep ravine at the time. Of course, he did not survive. In Croatia, there was a man by the name of Marco. Marco, he wanted to clean his chimney, so he went to his workshop, and he got himself a tool to clean it. But it was a high, high chimney, and his broom was too short. He had a plan. See, Marco was a thinking man, so he attached his broom to a chain, and he weighed it down on one end with a metal object, and he hung it down from the top, and he found the perfect metal object to hang down. It was small, but it was heavy. So he welded it onto the chain, but somehow he overlooked the fact that this small, heavy object was a live grenade. Well, soon after heating up the welder, there was a loud explosion, of course, and Marco, I'm sad to say, was killed instantly. His workshop was completely destroyed, and his chimney never got cleaned. You know, the Bible, it recognizes men who do foolish things. It calls it. And one of those foolish things that it talks about consistently in the Word of God is to reject Jesus Christ. That's a part of the reason why the wording is so strong here. The wording is very strong, isn't it? But that's why we have such strong language from Paul. Because to reject the gospel of Jesus Christ is the most foolish thing you can do. I wonder how many churches today, I wonder how many today would stand for this type of boldness. Even fewer would dare to speak this plain 
this straightforward, this open and honest about the judgment that will absolutely one day come upon anyone who dares to reject the name of Christ. You see, in this humanistic day in which we live, in the man-centered churches that fill this land, not many would tolerate a leader of the church speaking with such conviction as Paul. This was not just mustering up on his own enough fortitude and enough strength to do this. Why do I say this? Now hear me again. Boldness to witness. Boldness to share the gospel. It doesn't come from us. It comes from God. Boldness is something you need to pray for. Paul is one that asked for prayer on this. He told the church at Ephesus to pray for him that he may open his mouth boldly to make known the mystery of the gospel. You see, it's the Spirit of God that empowers, that strengthens His people to speak with boldness on behalf of Him. If you're having a hard time sharing your faith in Jesus Christ, could it be that you're not even praying for boldness? And you see, when God inspires such a man to speak the words of the gospel with power, with conviction, and with boldness, men that argue against it, what are they doing? They're not just fighting amongst themselves. They're fighting with God. And that is what we have here. Now, first Paul told them in verse 46 that it was necessary that the word of God was spoken to the Jews first. Why, Paul? Why is it necessary? Well, Paul's teaching before this, from the week before, answers this question. The gospel to the Jews first. Why? Because Jesus is the Messiah who fulfilled God's promises to the Jewish people. But Paul, he wouldn't waste his efforts on those that rejected Christ. Paul turned to those who were receptive of the gospel of Christ. The Jews in Antioch, they had rejected the eternal life that is only found through Jesus Christ. Now allow the Word of God, allow this passage to speak for itself. Notice the reason the Jews were judged unworthy of everlasting life. It is because they rejected the message of eternal life in Christ. In other words, what did they do? They brought the verdict on themselves. They brought the judgment on themselves. It should make you think of the words of John 3 where Jesus said, He who believes in Him is not condemned, but he who does not believe is what? Condemned already, right? Because why? He has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. You see, the Word of God is very plain about this. The Word of God is very clear about this. That the reason for condemnation is because men and women refuse to believe. But if God is such a loving God, if God is such a loving God, if God cares about His people, you've heard this, why do some people go to hell? You've thought this. You've wondered this. Why don't all people belong to Jesus Christ? The answer from the Word of God is that it is because they refuse to believe. They refuse to accept the gospel message. They reject the gospel message, which deems them unworthy of eternal life. Now, this in no way diminishes the sovereignty of God. This does not diminish the sovereignty of God. But when people hear the gospel of Christ, you see what the Bible's telling us is when they hear the gospel of Christ, they now actually have a responsibility before God. It's not on God. It's not that God is cruel. It's not that God is unloving. It is a lack of faith, a lack of belief that condemns. If they accept the gospel message, it brings life. If they reject the gospel message, it is eternal separation from God. That simple. Now hear me on this. 
This warning of this responsibility to respond when confronted with the gospel, it is a part of the message that we are called to share when we witness for Christ. It is a part of the message that we are called to share as Christians. We are to warn men of the danger of being indifferent to the gospel of Christ. And that's not popular today, but it is what we are absolutely called to do. That is a part of the gospel message, that a lack of faith means eternal separation from God. And that's exactly what Paul did here, telling them that, hey, since they rejected the word of God, they judged themselves unworthy of everlasting life. See, if a man convinces himself that he does not need forgiveness from God, he's already condemned himself. And the only thing that Paul and Barnabas could do at this point in time was to turn to those who were receptive, which was who? The Gentiles. In verse 47, Paul uses Isaiah 49, verse 6. Notice what he said there. He says, For so the Lord has commanded us, I have sent you as a light to the Gentiles, that you should be for salvation to the ends of the earth. Now, some of you should remember this. We just looked at this a few months back in Isaiah 49. It's the second servant song of Isaiah. Do you guys remember this? It's the second servant song of Isaiah that we looked at earlier this year. Let's make our way there if you're tracking with me in Isaiah 49. Now remember that this is a passage, this is a prophecy about the coming servant of God. This is a passage about the Messiah, Jesus Christ. The servant songs speak of both the first and the second coming of Christ. So you need to be careful as you walk through them because sometimes you're talking about the first coming and sometimes you're talking about the second coming. This is a rich text. Read it with me starting in verse 5. And now the Lord says, who formed me from the womb to be his servant, to bring Jacob back to him so that Israel is gathered to him. For I shall be glorious in the eyes of the Lord and my God shall be my strength. Indeed, he says, it is too small a thing that you should be my servant. Notice this, referring to Christ, to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to restore the preserved ones of Israel. Who's that? The nation of Israel, right? I will also give you as a light to the Gentiles that you should be my salvation to the ends of the earth. Thus says the Lord, the Redeemer of Israel, their Holy One, to him whom man despises, to him whom the nation abhors, to the servant of rulers, kings shall see and rise, princes also shall worship because of the Lord who is faithful, the Holy One of Israel, and he has chosen you. You see, part of the mission of the servant Messiah is to bring the people of Israel to the Lord. Now, obviously, Acts teaches us that some of the Hebrew people, they did come to know Jesus Christ as Savior, didn't they? But Israel is not going to be restored until the second coming of Christ. And this is once again the theme here of verse 6 in Isaiah, that the servant Messiah, he will raise up the tribes of Jacob and restore the preserved ones of Israel. But key in on the second half of this verse, because this is the part of the verse that we see Paul and Barnabas quote, that part of the role of the Messiah is to be a light to the Gentiles, that Jesus Christ should be God's salvation to the ends of the earth. And what I love about verse 7 in this text is that at the first coming of Christ, how was he treated? Man despised him. The people rejected him. But in the future, it's not going to be this way, will it? Because the rulers of this world, they will bend their knees to the Lord Jesus Christ. 
the Messiah, will rule the earth. He will then establish his kingdom and he will deliver his people. And out of this passage, Paul built his understanding of the situation back in Acts chapter 13. Now, before we head back to Acts, I want you to stop off at the Gospel of Luke, Luke 2 specifically, because this passage, once again, it brings us back to the consistency of the Word of God. Luke chapter 2, the subject at hand is that Jesus had been born. And notice with me what Luke records starting in verse 25. It says, And behold, there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon. And this man was just and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel. Who's that? Jesus, right? Consolation of Israel. And the Holy Spirit was upon him. And it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. Powerful text. You know, the Jewish people, by and large, we don't think about this much today, but they, by and large, they were absolutely waiting for a Messiah to come. And the consolation of Israel in verse 25, that's just another title for the Messiah. And then they had this custom back then where they would offer five shekels on behalf of a child. And that's what we read now starting in this text in verse 27. Notice, so he came by the spirit into the temple and when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him, according to the custom of the law, putting in the shekels, he took him up in his arms and blessed God and said... Watch these words. These are powerful. Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared before the face of all peoples. And here it comes. Notice what he says about the Christ and the salvation that is so freely offered. A light to bring revelation to the Gentiles and the glory of your people Israel. And Joseph and his mother marveled at those things which were spoken of him. Then Simeon blessed them and said to Mary his mother, Behold, this child is destined for the fall and the rising of many in Israel. Notice what Simeon said in verse 34, that Jesus was destined for the fall and the rising of many in Israel. In other words, what is this saying? It's saying that many would reject Christ and fall into eternal damnation. Some would receive Christ and would be raised up unto eternal life. But the light of salvation was for both the Jews and the Gentiles. It's the same message as what I'm getting at. It's the same message that was proclaimed in Acts. And here's the point. When the Jews turned against the gospel and Paul turned to the Gentiles, he wasn't motivated by spite. He wasn't upset. He wasn't angry about it. He was motivated by this. He was motivated by the teaching of God's word that the gospel gospel was to go to the Gentiles because this was always God's plan from day one. Make your way back to Acts and notice the joy that the Gentiles had once they heard this message of the Word of God that salvation is also for the Gentiles. Verse 48 in your text. Now when the Gentiles heard this they were glad and they glorified the Word of the Lord and as many has been appointed to eternal life believed. Now, it is amazing to me, as you study the book of Acts, how many times do you see this, that the Apostle Paul, he continued to preach to the Jews first, and how many times do you see him over and over again reject the gospel message? But he didn't give up, did he? He never gave up. He was faithful, always to the Jew first, and then to the Gentiles, because the Gentiles were hungry for the gospel here. Now, at the end of verse 48, let's walk through this, guys. 
Let's allow the Word of God to speak for itself. Let's read nothing into this verse. In other words, what I'm saying is don't make it say more than what it says and don't make it say less than what it actually says. Now what we see with this statement here, and as many had been appointed to eternal life believed, the word for appointed was used to mean to inscribe or to enroll. And here the meaning would be that those that are redeemed in Christ, they have had their names inscribed into the book of life, into the Lamb's book of life. 2 Timothy 2.19, it tells us that the Lord knows who are His. John 16, it is the Spirit of God that convicts the world of what? Sin, righteousness, and judgment. In other words, what this is saying is God prepares the heart. Now, why does the heart of man need to be prepared? Because Paul says this in Romans 3. He says, as it is written, there is none righteous, no, not one. There's none who understands. There's none who seeks after God. Now, this doesn't mean that people are physically, constitutionally incapable of seeking God. Paul actually states this in Acts 17, that people should seek the Lord. In fact, the New Testament tells us 160 times. I think God had a point when he tells you something 160 times. It tells us that 160 times that salvation comes by belief, by faith, by trust. But Romans 3, you see, it's a statement that is saying they don't. They don't seek after God, not without God prompting them. And that's why Jesus said this in John 6, 44. He said, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise up at that last day. You see, what we see here is the same thing that we've seen time after time in the book of Acts. The Word of God teaches us that God was working, bringing these men and women to salvation. But at the same time, Luke does show us, let's balance this out, that the Gentiles, they still had a responsibility to believe, to respond in faith. These Gentiles took an active role in believing and trusting their lives to Jesus Christ. And it was in response to the Spirit of God working in them convicting them of sin. There's a balance here in the Word of God on this issue that we must uphold. Now Luke's intent, I think, gets lost in all this, but it was to show that God's salvation was extended to the Gentiles. Paul and Barnabas, they were harvesting the wheat that God had prepared. And that's the great irony of this text. The chosen people of God, the Jews, they believed they were God's elect, destined by heritage for salvation. But what did they do? They rejected their Messiah. Those that believed were mostly Gentiles. And they rejoiced because they'd been excluded so long from both the people of God and the worship of God. You know, when you're always standing on the outside, when you're always standing on the outside looking in, it's nice to come inside, isn't it? No wonder they rejoiced and gloried in the gospel of Christ. Look at the result in verse 49. And the word of the Lord was being spread throughout all the region. This region was being turned upside down for Jesus Christ because Paul preached the gospel of Jesus Christ. There is power in the Word of God. Take confidence in the power of the Word of God. But when the Word of God flourishes, so does the opposition from Satan every single time. Take a look at verse 50. But the Jews stirred up the devout and prominent women and the chief men of the city, raised up persecution against Paul and Barnabas, and expelled them from their region. Here it is again that Satan used the religious men and women of the city to hinder the advance of the gospel of Christ. 
The opposition, it started with the religious people of the day. It started with the Jews. And it started then to spread to some of the leading women, the Gentile women. They got involved. Now, why the women? Why does it say here that the women got involved? Well, because many, many Gentile women actually did go to the synagogues in that day. They did become followers of the Jewish faith. But then from there, the opposition, it spread and, and it went to the chief men of the city, men that had enough influence, enough power to force Paul and Barnabas out of their region, leaving us to wonder if at some point the government got involved. And notice what Paul and Barnabas did. But they shook off the dust from their feet against them and came to Iconium. It was Jesus himself in the Gospels who taught his disciples that when a town was unreceptive to the Gospel, that they should shake the dust off of their feet and move on. Consider this. The Jews had the tradition that when they returned from a trip in Gentile territory, when they were in Gentile lands, they would come back to Israel and they would shake the dust off of their sandals, off their feet, to symbolize that they were leaving the defilement behind of the Gentile lands because they were now standing on holy ground. They were now standing on the land of Israel. It was a way of saying that a city was unclean and bound for destruction. That a city was so unclean they didn't even want the dust from the city to cling to their feet, to cling to their sandals. And Paul and Barnabas here, they said, it's not on us. They were saying that, in effect, that they considered the Jews at Antioch no better than unbelieving Gentiles. You see, there could be no stronger condemnation. These Jews were left in their stubborn lack of belief in Jesus Christ. And the shaking, the dust off of their feet, it was a gesture that pointed to the future judgment that will come if they continue to reject Christ. Now, Luke kind of doesn't give us all the details here, but Paul mentions this event quite a bit later. Notice what happens when he writes about this in Timothy, the persecution that he actually went through at this time. 2 Timothy 3, notice starting in verse 10, it says, But you have carefully followed my doctrine, my manner of life, my purpose, my faith, my long-suffering, love, perseverance. Watch. Persecutions and afflictions, which happened to me at where? Antioch and at Iconium, at Lystra. What persecutions I endured, and out of them all the Lord delivered me. And here's our verse that we talked about this morning in Sunday school. Yes, and all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution, but evil men and imposters will grow worse and worse, deceiving and being deceived. And if you think it was bad 2,000 years ago, Paul says it's going to get worse and worse and worse and worse and worse and worse and worse. Think of the words of Paul to Timothy in this passage. He endured great persecution for the faith, but the Lord delivered him. Paul told Timothy, all who actually step out and desire to live godly in Christ Jesus, they will suffer persecution. Evil men and imposters will grow worse and worse, deceived and being deceived. Things will not get better. Until Christ comes back, things will only get worse, much, much worse. Back in chapter 13 of Acts, Paul and Barnabas were forced out of the region by those who rejected Christ. You can follow their journey to Iconium now on the Green Line. It was about 80 to 90 miles to the east, but all was not lost in Antioch because a church had been born. And Luke tells us the disciples were filled with joy. They were filled with the Holy Spirit. The disciples 
in the book of Acts. They stood in the face of persecution. They prayed for boldness as they proclaimed Jesus Christ. And God guided them step by step as they surrendered their lives to his will day by day. I'm reminded of a man that I can guarantee most of you have never heard about, a man from the 1800s by the name of Lu Fuq. Now, Lu was a Chinese Christian, and Lu had a burden. He had a passion for the workers that were in the South African mines. So in 1861, he realized that these people needed the gospel of Christ. He came to the realization that the easiest way to reach these slave workers in the mines would be to actually sell himself into slavery for a period of five years. Just so he could have an opportunity to take the gospel of Christ to the Chinese slaves that were working in the mines. Well, he worked hard. He suffered as a slave, and he preached and he shared Jesus Christ to those that worked in the mines. Now, before his five years were up, Lou died, but not before he actually saw 200 slave miners receive Jesus Christ as Savior. In fact, the, the work became so effective there that a church in this slave colony in South Africa, it, a church was established that was actually sending missionaries back to China. You see, here was a man who lived out his love for the Lord. Here was a man that saw the need, the need of slaves and was willing to give up his freedoms to sell himself into slavery. So that slaves in these African mines could hear the gospel of Christ. He gave up his life in this world in the exchange for the eternal life of 200. But how? How? What motivates such a man? Him you've heard about, probably most of you anyways, consider Hudson Taylor. Hudson Taylor, of course, spending most of his life in the 1800s. He was the founder and director of the China Inland Mission. And the stress that he lived under was incredible. Living in China in the 1800s, while still the whole time trying to recruit workers back in England. He saw his missionaries that were underneath him deal with persecution, many to the point of laying down their lives for the gospel. And shortly after sending his children back to England because it was too dangerous in China, he saw his young wife and their newborn son die. But somehow... The entire time, he remained calm. Somehow, he remained peaceful, full of faith. And his passion to reach others, it just engulfed people around him. And at his death, after his life, his mission agency had included 205 mission stations in China with more than 800 missionaries and 150,000 Chinese Christians. But how did he do it? One of his friends wrote this. He said, he dwelt in Christ. He drew upon his being. He drew upon his resources. And this he did with an attitude of faith as simple as it was continuous. It was the true abiding in Jesus Christ of John 15. You guys remember the text. What did Jesus tell the disciples? He said, I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him bears much fruit. For without me you can do what? Nothing. And a little later on he said this. He said, by this my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit so you will be my disciples. 
See, if you're redeemed by the blood of the Lamb, if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, if you've been saved by faith, your purpose is to not live for yourself. Your purpose is to live for the glory of God. And let me suggest to you that this, this is an important principle. There is a difference in the Word of God between being a believer and a disciple of Christ. I don't believe they're the same. A believer is redeemed by faith in the blood of the Lamb, but a disciple moves further, having learned to abide in Jesus Christ, to rest in Him, to rest in His Word, to live in Jesus Christ, and to depend on Christ, to live for His glory, to ask the question, friends, what is God calling me to do? How should I serve? How should I live for His glory? What can I do as a believer in Jesus Christ to encourage others in the faith? What can I do to help the mission of the church of Jesus Christ? What can I do to make sure that others know about the Lord Jesus Christ? Praying for one another. Making the time to be faithful to the assembly of the saints. And most importantly, getting our eyes off of ourselves and onto the Savior, the author and finisher of our faith. See, joy begins when you learn to live for the Savior, Jesus Christ. Find His joy by learning to live in His love, by learning to live by His Word. Amen. Return to the Word Ministries is committed to teaching the full counsel of God's Word and the gospel of Jesus Christ. For more about our ministry, please visit returntotheword.com. Return to the Word is a faith ministry. This means we freely distribute the teaching of the Word of God over the air and online. We do this without charge. If you feel led to support the ministry with a donation to help cover these costs, you may do so on our website, returntotheword.com, or by mailing a donation to Return to the Word, P.O. Box 879-259, Wasilla, Alaska, 99687. Thanks for listening, and we pray that the Word of God will be a lamp unto your feet and a light unto your path. Join us next time for another edition of Return.